So it's my great pleasure again to introduce Professor John Wyatt, an old friend going back over many years. John is Emeritus Professor of Neonatal Pediatrics at the University College London and a senior researcher at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge and also president of the UK Christian Medical Fellowship, which is one of ICMDA's member organizations. John has a clinical background as a pediatrician caring for sick and premature infants, and also as a medical scientist researching into the prevention of brain injury in newborn babies. He's always been interested in ethical dilemmas raised by advances in medical technology and has frequently engaged in public and professional consultations and debates from the perspective of the Christian faith. His uh, perhaps best known book, Matters of Life and Death, Human Dilemmas in the Light of the Christian Faith has been translated into more than 10 languages. And his most recent book with, a, with an intriguing title, The Robot Will See You Now, uh, uh, is, is now available on Amazon. He's also contributed a chapter to a book called Healthy Faith and the Coronavirus Crisis. And John and his wife, Celia, are longstanding members of All Souls Church in London. So, John, lovely to have you back here. And we look forward to hearing you on euthanasia and assisted suicide. Over to you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Peter. It's great to be here again and uh, to be able to have this amazing opportunity by technology to involve, be involved in a conversation and discussion around the world. So uh, I look forward to um, to getting uh, Q&A and, and issues that we can discuss further. So uh, my goal in this talk is really to look at recent developments in um, the area of euthanasia and assisted suicide. I'm not going to talk about the basic ethical uh, issues I'm going to take that for red, and of course they are available in other webinars and also in some of my writing, including uh, books such as Matters of Life and Death and Right to Die? Um, so I'm just going to be looking at particular things which strike me about the way that the, the debate is moving on across the world. But I want to start by um, pointing out this extraordinary um, inconsistency and contradiction you get in modern thinking because on the one hand we have a very serious move to try to extend life as, as long as possible with the goal being if at all possible to extend human life indefinitely and what's interesting is that a lot of this is coming out of Silicon Valley uh, where you've got some extremely rich uh, entrepreneurs who are used to throwing money at their biggest problems and what's apparent is that many of these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are terrified of dying and therefore they are throwing enormous billions of money at, into medical research, into uh, tackling aging and ultimately life extension and trying to defeat death. And Calico is one example of a, a company funded by Google, uh, which is doing uh, leading research into uh, life extension. Another example of this is the so-called cryonics, where you can have your body uh, immersed in liquid nitrogen in the forlorn hope that uh, you are actually going to be uh, preserved so that a future generation will come across this corpse in liquid nitrogen and will decide to resuscitate it with whatever 
technology is available in, in the future hope and there are particularly in california you get these these vats are filled with liquid nitrogen and inside you've got to imagine all these bodies suspended uh, in in the in the hope that sometimes they're going to be resuscitated so on the one hand you get this extraordinary uh preoccupation with extending life and on the other hand we get this uh growth of uh various forms of medical killing. So just very recently, The Economist magazine uh, had this uh, article uh, about uh, so-called assisted dying. And uh, they make the statement that in the West, assisted dying is rapidly becoming legal and accepted. And certainly The Economist magazine uses its considerable authority to argue in favor of that. It's, they're saying it's about time. This is fits in with their liberal agenda uh we need to make assisted dying it needs to be recognized that various forms of uh medical killing should now become legal and accepted and uh, as the economist magazine said it's raising hard questions and changing how people think about death and, and certainly one of the obvious phenomena which you see in all the places where various forms of medical killing have been uh, legalized is this very interesting and progressive rise in numbers. So these are numbers from the Netherlands uh, showing this progressive increase and that increase has continued up to the present statistics. And um, we see uh, this in terms of the euthanasia cases by diagnosis. We see that starting in 2002 when euthanasia was legalized in the Netherlands, the vast majority of cases involve cancer, whereas if you come to the latest in this uh, slide in 2016, you can see that there are now a lot of other conditions uh, for which euthanasia is being carried out. And this again seems to be a trend, a broadening of the diagnostic categories. Um, Canada, I think, is particularly uh, interesting and, and chilling uh, in the very rapid rise in uh, euthanasia cases very interesting that in canada this is called medical aid in dying uh 99 of the cases are actually euthanasia lethal injection by a doctor uh, causing instantaneous death and only one percent involve oral administration uh, in contrast to places like the oregon state or washington state in the usa where it's entirely self-administered lethal medication so you get these very interesting and, and illogical uh, differences in, in practice in different countries. Um, there's a lot of detail on this slide, but it, it shows the reasons given for euthanasia in Canada. And again, this reflects the same in many different places across the world. It's often not about pain. Uh, the, the top here is loss of ability to engage in meaningful life activities, loss of ability to perform activities of daily living, and uh, perceived burden on family, loss of dignity, isolation or loneliness. So although pain is in there, uh, representing concern about pain, about 50%, uh, it, in many, many cases, people are going for euthanasia because of a sense of uh, uh, fear of dependence, fear of meaninglessness of life and so on. And uh, in Canada also, and I think this is in some ways reflects what may well would happen in the UK, uh, in a very regulated uh, health service in Canada, as soon as the law 
part was passed and then care pathways have been um created which then um enable uh, which, which give guidance to um clinical teams and and so euthanasia is, is seen very much as a treatment option for all patients with distressing symptoms or or terminal illness and uh, it ends up down at the bottom of the care pathway with um the administration of the lethal injection uh, in Switzerland, these are statistics showing the rise in um, suicide in Switzerland. And it's interesting that the principal rise in of suicide in Switzerland has actually been amongst Swiss residents, uh, which are the dark red in this graph going up. It's increasing fourfold from 2003 to 2016. Uh, although there is also an increase in the number of uh, suicides occurring at Dignitas uh, with foreign uh, uh, residents. So here in the UK, we've had many attempts to legalize uh, legislative attempts to legalize various forms of assisted suicide. Uh, and the latest is the so called assisted dying bill, uh, which was um, debated in the House of Lords just in October. And here, the criteria for which lethal medicine can be legally given would be age 18 or over, a settled and quote, uncoerced will to kill themselves, a life expectancy of less than six months and legally defined capacity. And uh, it's interesting that in the legislation, in the U proposed legislation in the UK, there is no mention of suffering, uh, which is very different from, for instance, in the Netherlands where hopeless and unbearable suffering is an essential criteria. So. Again, it's it's quite fascinating to see that the different legislative approaches are, are fundamentally incompatible. Uh, in places like the Netherlands and Canada, you have to have hopeless and unbearable suffering, but you don't have any limitations in terms of life expectancy. Uh, in uh, Oregon and in what's proposed in England and Wales, you have to have a terminal illness with less than six months to live, but you don't have to have any degree of suffering. Um, I had the privilege of working with CARE and with uh, CMF, the Christian Medical Fellowship in the UK. CARE is a Christian charity in the UK in providing a, a, a report on assisted dying, which I did under my own name and which was given to 500 members of the House of Lords just in the week prior to, um, to, to the debate. And uh, I'm currently working on a version of this book to be made available, which will be published generally, I hope, within the next couple of months, um, with just basically making the arguments about why um, legalization of assisted dying or assisted suicide is not uh, an appropriate way for us to go. But as we look around the world, again, what we see is the way that this progressive liberalization of, uh, of, of legal uh, of laws I'm unfortunately, it's absolutely uh, predictable. So uh, the Dutch Supreme Court um, addressed the question of whether euthanasia was appropriate for dementia patients. And they have concluded that um, patients can, can put a, an advanced statement that they uh, wish to receive euthanasia if they know that they are being diagnosed with dementia and 
such that at a later stage when the dementia is advanced, they can be killed by a doctor without having to have any express um, a desire to, to kill themselves. And, and uh, indeed, there was a, a, a tragic case in the Netherlands uh, several years ago where somebody had written an advanced statement like this, saying that they had a horror of developing dementia, and if they ever developed dementia, they wished to be killed. Um, and then uh, when the person did, in fact, develop dementia, um, when they were asked if they were ready to be killed, they said no, and they repeatedly said no. And eventually, um, the doctor felt that it was his duty, quotes, to to administer a lethal injection to the patient, even though the patient was resisting and said they didn't, and it had to, apparently, according to the reports, had to be held down in order to receive the lethal injection. This case went to the to the courts, was challenged, but the courts ultimately defended the doctor and saying that it was the advanced statement of the uh, the patient that that was legally binding. So the Dutch uh, have gone down this direction, and uh, it seems that Canada is also going down this uh, in this direction. So in Canada, the, the the legal framework is what's called medical aid in dying, and this was legalized uh, earlier on in 2016, was when the initial law, law was uh, developed, but um in march 2021 the law was has been amended uh quite radically and liberalized so it now whereas previously um the medical aid in dying bill said that death had to be reasonably foreseeable this had was subject to repeated test cases and the law has now been amended so that so that that clause has been removed there's no requirement for death to be reasonably foreseeable and that means that that people can with a chronic disabling condition uh, can can argue that if they have uh, significant suffering that they can be uh, killed uh, however long their life expectancy um, there's also no need to give final consent prior to the procedure and therefore for people with alzheimer's or other degenerative conditions they can write advanced directives years in advance which would be then carried out uh, medical aid in dying is is going to be made available for people with psychiatric conditions from 2023 and they are actively looking in Canada at, the, at whether or not to enable medical aid in dying for so-called mature minors. These would be people under the age of 18 who have some form of legal capacity. So again, we see this uh, consistent theme that once law is enacted, it is progressively liberalized and the criteria are, are increased. And it's interesting just to look at the rhetoric. I was just looking at some rhetoric in, in uh, of, of news reports about this in Canada. And uh, for many people, this is a wonderful thing. For people with dementia, changes in the medical aid in dying law offer new hope. Changes to Bill C-7 have released people with dementia from a cruel trap by letting them make provisions in advance to end their lives. So there are many people who are hailing this as a great advance in medical law that people with dementia are able to make binding advance uh, directions for for them to be killed at a later stage in their life. Another uh, interesting and slightly bizarre uh, development is that is the idea of combining euthanasia with organ donation. And uh, this is now uh, actually being actively pursued uh, in Canada as well as in Belgium and um, in fact the transplant authorities in, in Canada are positively promoting 
this option, you know, because it seems a win-win. Not only can you solve the problem of ending your own life, but at the same time, if it's done in a properly controlled manner, you can donate organs. And the idea is to try to commit to make ensure that the euthanasia is carried out in a way which maximizes the opportunity for so-called, quote, harvesting organs in good condition. And um, th this is, it appears to be a, a, another development. And uh, in, in Ontario, a man chose a medically assisted death at home. He had been uh, diagnosed with Huntington's disease, although he was in a pre-symptomatic stage or a relatively pre-symptomatic stage. And he decided he just wanted uh, to, to be killed, but he chose to do it in advance so that he could donate uh, organs uh, with, with the transplant team. Another really concerning trend in Canada and seen elsewhere as well is the merging between palliative care and various forms of euthanasia. So historically, uh, palliative care, and the, the philosophy behind, behind palliative care is seen as something entirely antithetical, entirely different from uh, euthanasia. But uh, what we are now seeing is the growth and the pressure on palliative care uh, services to actually enable euthanasia to be carried out as well on their premises and and so it's a sort of choice you uh, if you have a terminal illness you can have palliative care but if at any time it seems that the symptoms have become uh, too distressing then you can choose euthanasia and there's a lot of pressure from uh, euthanasia campaigners to ensure that palliative care facilities also uh, enable um, various forms of, of euthanasia. And there's also been pressure on uh, institutions. So in Canada, there are a number of independent Catholic hospitals which, who are who provide services within the state funded health services. And, and they've been uh, there's been pressure on the Catholic uh, hospitals to say that unless they provide this kind of service, then they will not be able to continue to have funding from the state. So, so uh, extremely uh, severe pressure, both on hospitals and also on individuals. And uh, there is a, a great deal of concern that individual doctors are also being bullied, uh, although in theory, there is the right of conscience and protection again, for physicians. In reality, uh, there can be intense pressure on physicians uh, to participate and to inform um, patients about their, the option for medical aid in dying and to participate in, in referrals and so on. And I don't think it's going to end there. It's already interesting that in, in the Netherlands, the, the debate ha has moved on. Really, uh, the debate about uh, euthanasia in cancer and so on is, is regarded as, as passe. It's not worth continuing because euthanasia is is an accepted option um the debate has moved on and in particular there are there's a lot of pressure under doctors to provide euthanasia for older people who are quote tired of life in other words they don't have any recognizable medical condition uh, but they have decided that their uh, their life they want to end their lives they want to commit 
suicide effectively, but they want to do it with medical help. And um, so far, the Dutch doctors and, and the uh, Dutch Medical Association has has resisted this. They've discussed it, but said this is not a medical role. We don't we we exist to treat uh, patients who have a recognizable illness. We're not here to uh, to end the lives of people who are simply tired of life. But there is a lot of pressure and um, it looks as though the political pressure is starting to uh, increase to extend the law further. So I just want to step back then from this sort of overview. I think I think if we if we just look across the world, I'm afraid we can see many new legislations uh, bringing in or discussing uh, assisted suicide law, including Spain, uh, New Zealand, and uh, a number of other a number number of other countries across the world. It seems that this is an inexorable spread which is taking place across the world. It's worth stepping back and just looking at, uh, at why this is happening. And in particular, there are some extremely well-funded and effective lobbying organizations around the world. Uh, in, in the UK, this organization used to be called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, uh, but it changed its name uh, about 15 years ago and became Dignity in Dying. And the name change, of course, is highly significant. You would think that an organization called Dignity in Dying was, was devoted towards improving care of dying people, ensuring that they receive excellent palliative care and so on. But in fact, Dignity in Dying has only one sole aim, uh, ultimately, and that is to, to lobby and uh, politicians to change the law uh, and to support people who are wishing to end their lives uh, either through assisted suicide or through euthanasia. And um, they have become extremely effective uh, lobbying organizations and there are similar organizations like this across the world. And one of the things to notice is the way that nearly all of these organizations use euphemistic or gentle but misleading language. Um, perhaps the Dutch are an, a, an honorable exception. I mean, the Dutch are, are famously known to be rather blunt and direct speaking in their nature. And it's, it, I think it's to their, um, to their tribute that they talk about uh, they're quite blunt about talking about euthanasia and assisted suicide. But most other countries choose to use much more um, euphemistic and gentle and misleading language. So these are the kind of phrases, death with dignity, that's how, what it's called in Oregon, uh, assisted dying, this is what it's called in the UK uh, and elsewhere which is a deliberately manipulative and misleading term. Medical aid in dying, that's what it's called in Canada. Uh, ensuring a dignified death, the right to choose, easing the passing, ending suffering when it becomes unbearable, choice and control over how we die, and so on. All of these uh, terms are describing intentional killing 
and me medical medical intentional killing and yet it's worth asking the question why is it that campaigners are so careful to use this language including you know philosophers and lawyers who, whose whole career is dedicated to very precise use of language why is it these this kind of language and i think it illustrates of how important language is to us as human beings and as moral beings the language we use to describe our behavior matters and therefore if i as a physician describe my behavior as killing my patient as ending the life of my patient then i am likely to interpret that differently of if i if i describe my actions as i'm just assisting dying i'm ending suffering uh, so the language we use about our our behavior really matters and i like this um ancient proverb that the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name and so i think in trying to resist this uh the spread of medical killing we have to be careful about our language and trying to use our language to use uh accurate and um non-misleading language and so i think we should be clear that euthanasia is intentional medical killing of a person as part of their medical treatment or care so-called and so the important thing is that the intention is to end life it is to introduce death into a patient who is not dying who is not actively dying in whom the end of life is not occurring the intention is to end life quickly and cleanly and medically assisted suicide the intention is the same the doctor's intention is that the patient should die rapidly and cleanly and you can see that in the choice of drugs the the main drugs that are used across the world are massive doses of barbiturates um often coupled in lethal injection with a with a muscle relaxant um but it's interesting that um and 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 quite grisly that in oregon uh, now uh, doctors are increasingly using a very toxic mixture of very large doses of digoxin and propranolol highly cardiotoxic combination of drugs which are designed to cause rapid arrhythmias and cardiac arrest um, so the intention to kill is very clear by the choice of drugs of course these drugs are not used at all in palliative care and the arguments i think can be distilled down the two major arguments are compassion i'm such a caring person that i have to kill help you kill yourself to end your suffering or autonomy every person has the right to choose the time and the manner of their death these are the two dominant arguments that are used time and time again by campaigners and there have been a number of prominent christian leaders who have come out a small number but nonetheless significant um, one of the most prominent of all is the ex-archbishop of canterbury lord carey who has come out using the argument from compassion arguing that it's the compassionate thing to do is to help people to kill themselves if they are in quotes unbearable suffering i like this quote from hl mencken an american journalist who said there's always an easy solution to every human problem. 
neat, plausible, and wrong. And and that's what euthanasia and assisted suicide, that's what they are. It's, they seem so neat, they seem so plausible, but they're wrong. And ultimately we have, I believe, to stand up against this and argue the case that there is no need to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. So as I come to the end of my talk, how do we respond to this threat of legalized medical killing, which I'm afraid, humanly speaking, does seem to be spreading inexorably across the globe. I think that public education is absolutely central to this. People just are very, very ignorant about appropriate care at the end of life. And so we have a huge task as physicians and healthcare professionals to educate people about the realities of end of life care and about how effective palliative care is. I mean, I was saddened to hear in the House of Lords debate just last month, repeated tragic stories of people dying in agony, wanting to kill themselves. But the point was not made clearly that actually none of these people were receiving effective palliative care. And that if you, if you see you know, the very best quality palliative care that can be provided, you realize that actually this huge levels of distress and agony can be almost entirely eradicated or at least very significantly ameliorated. So the, um, there, there is a huge task of public education and, I, and in particular, we need to provide information and advice for politicians and legislators. I think that doctors and healthcare professionals have a special role in ensuring that politicians and legislators understand what the issues are and understand the priority of, of funding palliative care rather than introducing various forms of medical killing. But I think we also need uh, realistically to start considering contingency plans for resilience and resistance in case legislation does come in. Um, just on the question of public education, there's a number of studies which have shown how confused people are. This is data that came from the Netherlands that showing that large numbers of people are confused about what assisted, what the legalization of assisted dying actually means. So significant numbers of people thought that assisted dying included turning off life support, withdrawing or withholding life support treatments. They thought assisted dying meant stopping medical tests and medical treatments. And they thought that assisted dying included do not resuscitate orders. Well, of course, as we know, all of those three things are part of well-recognized part of ethical medical care and are available at the moment in uh, most advanced uh, medical jurisdictions across the world. So it's the confusion about what assisted dying actually represents is a very important part in the whole debate. With regard to resilience and resistance, I think we, we need to develop and promote the arguments about defending conscience rights uh, for physicians, other healthcare pr practitioners and health institutions. So this is very evident in places, particularly in Canada, that the pressures that there are on uh, 
both physicians and others and institutions who are resisting this. So I think we really need to argue the case so that even if euthanasia is legalized, the conscience rights for those who are opposed to it are, are strongly protected. I think we need to really consider how to create euthanasia free zones within state funded healthcare systems. And finally, I think if euthanasia is legalized in different countries, we need to seriously think about creating independent Christian or pro-life or Hippocratic euthanasia free healthcare services. And finally, I want to mention, of course, the spiritual element behind all this, the spiritual battle. Jesus says in John chapter eight, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Very, very strong language. And we see here these two characteristics of the evil one. First, he's a murderer. And we see this in this battle. The battle is about killing. It's about the destruction of precious lives. And secondly, the evil one is a liar. The battle is about truth, lies, and the manipulation of language. So yes, we need to be good in, in promoting um, material, educational material, but we mustn't forget that in a spiritual battle, prayer is the most vital weapon. And that, so we need to encourage the churches, the Christians, the interceders, intercessors in our, uh, in our churches to see this as a spiritual battle and to engage against the forces of darkness, the, the murderer and the liar. So finally, I, I like um, the profound words of G.K. Chesterton. It's easy, isn't it? When confronted with this, I'm sorry, it's such a grisly topic and it's a pretty depressing topic as we see medical killing spreading across, spreading across the world. G.K. Chesterton said there are two equal and opposite sins against Christian hope, the sin of presumption to assume that everything is going to go okay, and the sin of despair. And they're both sins. Instead, we need to practice the daily discipline of Christian hope. Hope is to hear the melody of the future, and faith is to dance to that melody in the present. May God help us to hang on to that hope, to hear that melody, and to dance to the melody as we face these challenges. So um, I'm hoping this book, as I said, will be available. Uh, it's not available at the moment, but it should come available within the next couple of months. And there are more resources on my website, johnwyatt.com. And, and these are the books that are relevant to this topic. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, John. We've been listening to Professor John Wyatt talking about trends in euthanasia and assisted suicide. So, John, first of all, I just wonder, what's your impression on how awake the church is, you know, generally in the West or globally, to the kind of trends that you are uh, outlining here? And how engaged is the church, do you think, in, in trying to oppose uh, these, these trends? Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, there are one or two uh, 
honourable exceptions. And I, I, I think I was encouraged that once uh, Christians are informed, for instance, in the House of Lords debate, there were a number of very good contributions from bishops, including the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and others. So I, I, I think there is some awareness amongst Christian leaders, but I have to say, generally, I'm afraid, I think there is a, a, a deep level of ignorance. And in fact, I think there are many Christians who are secretly in favour of euthanasia. They, they have bought the, the propaganda. Uh, they wouldn't say it publicly, but they think, you know, if I was in terrible pain and someone was offering me a way out, I'd take it, you know. And, and so I think there is a huge task of education um, within the within the churches and um, I mean part of the problem is that people just don't want to talk about death I mean it's a it's such a, a painful difficult topic I mean much better to change the subject and so uh, you know to stare at death and to think about one's own dying and all that kind of stuff it, it, there's a lot of resistance to that and um, yeah so I, I, I think we do have a big task I, I think it's interesting that no whole number of studies have shown that the nearer you get to actually caring for dying people the more likely you are to be opposed to legalization of euthanasia so uh, and why, see, why do you think why do you think that is what why is that this is often said why are the doctors who are closest to the dying patient people like palliative medicine specialists why do you think they're much more opposed to a change in the law than other doctors or the general population I think the, the the sad truth is, well, perhaps it's not a sad truth, the, the reality is that, that most people have no experience of watching people die. Um, you know, death has become, whereas it used to be completely routine, you know, every family would have watched children die, they would have watched elder people die, they all died at home, they died surrounded by their loved ones, they, you know, they, there was a whole emphasis on what it meant to die well. You know, what's happened over the last 50 years is that death has become increasingly medicalized. It's something that is taken out of normal experience and it all happens in hospitals, surrounded by professionals and, and people just don't want to think about it. They don't, they're not interested in it. They have no experience with it. And so in that setting, you know, it's, it's just not possible for, it's very difficult for quote, ordinary people to have a realistic understanding of what it's like to die. Um, if they've never watched somebody, they've never been involved. Um, and so, you know, we all have the experience of if you talk to somebody, young, fit person, um, you know, over a meal or something like that, and you, the discussion turns to this, they will say, very commonly people say, well, you know, if I, if I knew I had a terminal illness, I'd say, I've had a good life, you know, just if I, I, I'd want to die, give me the tablets, doc. But we all know that actually, when you are uh, dealing with people who are facing death, it's very, very different. And therefore, there, there is an argument that it's just not possible to prepare yourself in advance unless you've been there and and the only people who've really had um a lot of experience of that are our palliative care doctors by and large who've, who've who've walked alongside people who are dying and who've really engaged with them and so i i think we have to trust the people who have the most experience and that's why to be honest i think you know isn't it sad that lord carey 
who has had no experience of caring for dying people is using his influence uh, to to argue for a change in the law, whereas there's so many Christian doctors who are working with people at the end of the life who are arguing against it. Absolutely, and you were you were talking about the the lobby that's pushing for this because this is people often talk about a slippery slope, don't they? But uh, I think I prefer the the term incremental extension because there is certainly an active campaign a movement all around the world really to push legislation on this area that's very well funded you mentioned uh, dignity in dying uh, and so on is this a similarly well organized lobby against euthanasia uh, how much of the church is involved in it and and what could we do to, yes uh, to improve I it? I, I mean it's it's almost tragic to see the difference between the funding that's available for these pro euthanasia groups compared with the with the funding of the anti anti euthanasia groups. I mean, it, here in the UK, the annual turnover of dignity in dying, according to their published accounts, is, is I think approaching two million pounds a year, uh, and and they they have tens of professional staff solely dedicated to promoting this if you, if you look at by comparison the equivalent organization care not killing you know has has a, a turnover of less than a hundred thousand i mean it's sort of oh, more than 20 to 1 in terms of funding i mean so if you talk about equality of armaments in in the battle it, it's it's tragically uh, unequal and so i i think there is a question about how to try to ensure that uh, we try to counter the, these very well-funded uh, groups. I, I think the truth is that there are a whole group of older people who have done very well, you know, the so-called baby boomers, who are now coming to the end of their life, and they've made a lot of money in their careers as professionals and so on, and they're now pouring money. They believe that this campaign is because they're terrified of their own death, and so they're pouring money into it, whereas raising money to pr oppose this, I think, is a much harder ask, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Are there discussions in any countries about who should offer euthanasia? I was struck by your comment that there was some resistance among Dutch doctors to the idea of offering it to people who are just tired of life as opposed to having some medical condition. Um, but are, are the discussions about it being offered outside the healthcare system, for example, or, or if not, why is there so much pressure from lobbyists to make it part of medicine? It's a very, very interesting question. And you could argue, and of course, I've made this argument, I think you've made the same argument, Peter, that, that the medical profession is the last profession on the planet to be involved in medical killing. Be because it's the medical profession right from its earliest days which committed itself to the protection of human life to use its skill always to cure and to heal and never to harm or to kill so why not create a a new discipline of euthanasiologists and and just train them in how to kill people uh, and 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 why not protect it entirely from uh, the medical profession? 
And it is interesting that in the proposed bill, in the assisted dying bill, it all revolves around the doctor. The doctor has to inform the patients, has to ensure that they are uh, not coerced, has to assess them, their capacity. The doctor has to prescribe drugs. The doctor has to advise. The doctor has to make sure that the drugs have been properly taken. The doctor has to report the case and so on and so on. It's all based around the medical duty. So the question is, well, well, why? And the answer is very clear, because the public don't trust anybody else to do the killing. Uh, the idea of having professional neutral killers is, is anathema to the public, the general public. The, 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 the public have built up in, in the, the idea that it's doctors who, and, and the healthcare professionals who are the most trusted members of society. And if we're going to trust anybody with a lethal injection, it has to be the doctors. We're not going to trust anybody else. We're certainly not going to trust lawyers. We're not going to trust politicians. We're not going to trust philosophers. We're not going to trust police officers. Who are we going to trust? Well, we'll trust that nice, friendly family doctor. I guess medicalizing it to some extent makes it more acceptable and palatable too to the to the uh, legislators. Uh, Charlotte Smith here is asking a question. She says, we've seen in the UK how the abortion law, which was initially intended only for a small number of desperate cases, has um, escalated to become an extension of contraceptive services, in a sense. And she's, she's saying, is there the same concern with assisted suicide and euthanasia that once legalised, it could just become an alternative to appropriate social care or, uh, or, or even be used to save money. Is there any evidence of this happening in countries where it has been legalized? Well, I'm absolutely certain that that is the long-term direction. Uh, it's an, as you put it, it's an incremental extension and we should recognize that um, this legislation has only been around for a relatively short time in a relatively small number of countries. Uh, but if if the Netherlands, if you take the Netherlands as the the place where it has been has the, the longest history, then that move towards social engineering, if you like, seems very clear. And uh, I I think there is absolutely no doubt that once this becomes regarded as a treatment option, for instance. There's no doubt that if the assisted dying bill was passed in the UK, every one of the 300,000 or more terminally ill patients in the NHS, every one would, would be legally, there would be a legal duty for the doctors to inform them okay. that suicide was an option. And, and so we would have 300,000 people considering the possibility of suicide and, you know, if, if one extrapolates to the forward, and particularly when you think about things like the rise of dementia, you think about care costs at the end of life, um, you think about concerns about how society is going to cope with increasing numbers of elderly people, it doesn't take a genius to see that um, the social pressures on elderly people to do the decent thing. I mean, one could even imagine a kind of incentive scheme, couldn't you? You know, you you could refuse many, uh, some form of uh, euthanasia, of course, but you know if you were to agree, you know we would give you some enormous 
handout in advance and we would make payment to your relatives and so on because you're doing the decent thing you're doing the altruistic thing you don't want to be a burden to others you don't want to be a burden to the state you're doing the right thing that like you you know it doesn't take a genius to see how the arguments in that will 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 develop yes and I, I guess once euthanasia is seen as a treatment option it's going to get costed isn't it and compared with other treatment options uh, ian lacy's asked a couple of questions here that are related and the first one is why don't we make sufficient palliative care available and he he says in the uk there's a, a problem where most palliative care is funded through the charitable sector not the NHS, but he's also asking the question, given that with the way society is changing, people are spending more time in poor health, particularly at the end of life, and most, most health spending goes at the end of life, and given the relative cheapness of barbiturates against alternatives, <laughs> is, is there a real danger that, uh, that um, health economists and health managers and politicians might see that there's a real economic uh, incentive, if you like, to be pushing this as a treatment option. Yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it's utterly outrageous that in a rich country like the UK, you know, with something like the fifth strongest economy in the world, that we fund a large amount of care for the dying by people shaking tins and, and going around trying to raise with fundraising events, you know, and, and so the NHS pours literally billions of money into very, very sophisticated experimental treatments to try and prolong life by a few weeks or months. And yet we can't properly fund and resource um, palliative care services. I mean, it's completely outrageous. And yet the UK has some of the best funded care in the world. If you look across in other medical systems, it's even worse. And, and again, you could ask the question, well, why is that? And I think it's it's fear of death. And it's the same reason why people don't want to make their own wills and make provision for their own funerals and everything else like that, 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 that even health planners are frightened of death and don't want to invest large sums of money in providing resources for end of life care. So, so yes, I think we need to to use our influence to try to promote and encourage and, and celebrate how good expert palliative care is and say, look, this is a much better and healthier option. It seems somewhat ironic that the places where euthanasia and assisted suicide are being pushed the most and where the laws are changing are relatively well-resourced Western countries. We don't hear much about a push for it in under-resourced developing countries, for example. Why, why do you think that is? Is it something to do with an underlying ideology or worldview, or is it just that the pro-euthanasia lobby are not as well organized there? Why, why this discrepancy? It's a, it's a very good point. And I think my own view is, is that that is because it's the argument from autonomy which is increasingly the dominant argument. Yes, there is still an argument about and compassion about people in pain and all the rest, but that is not the real issue. The real issue is modern people's desire for control over every aspect of their life. And to many, many modern liberal people who grow, growing up in rich liberal Western countries, 
they regard it as just simply outrageous that I can control every other aspect of my life. I can decide where I live, how I spend my money, who I, who I marry, you know, every aspect of how I work and so on. Every aspect of my life is at my choice and control, except I have no control over when and how I die. And they say, this is ridiculous. This is the 21st century. And, and so that is the primary driving force, I think. And, and, and of course, that is the argument to which ultimately there is no medical solution. Palliative care doesn't solve that. The only answer is actually the answer of the gospel. The answer of the gospel says that it is in recognizing our dependence that we are ultimately free to be ourselves and that this desire for control is ultimately a mistake. Yes, it's fascinating. It came out in your talk, particularly with the uh, Canadian statistics, that what's pushing people to embrace this solution is uh, more existential reasons than than uh, medical reasons. It's about loss of meaning and purpose or not being able to do the things that gave one's life meaning and purpose again. There's another fascinating comment here from a developing world context. Anthony Enamel in West Africa is, is saying, uh, not sure how to classify this, but in some developing countries, the tradition of some cultures is to prefer expensive funerals for a dead person uh, rather than paying for medications to save lives uh, during life. Uh, family members who could have supported the sick person in the hospital would rather hold on to the financial support and yet will be very willing to contribute money for a, a grand funeral for the same person. Is hmm. this a form of family euthanasia? That was certainly a new one on me. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I don't know the particular culture in question, but... It's certainly true that in many non-Christian cultures across the world, and historically, death has not been seen as an enemy. Uh, it, it, it is seen as a natural process and as something even, you know, that suicide or ending one's life could be seen as something heroic and rational and appropriate. I mean, many, many non-Christian cultures have have almost had this pro-death uh, view. And it's really cultures which have been influenced by the Christian revelation who have always seen death as an enemy and have always seen fighting against death. And, and that's, of course, why medical care, Western uh, scientific medical care or just basic medical care, really developed within the Christian context, within the early Christian church. And it's because of this sense that that death is an enemy uh, to be resisted is is basically a Christian insight. So we shouldn't be surprised, I think, that in in other cultures which haven't been influenced by the Christian revelation, that sometimes there is more this idea that that there's no point in spending money to try and fight against death. We should accept death, and instead let's have a good funeral. Mm. But of course the the antithesis of that is that is that in the West we've taken it to the extreme where we've now medicalized death. We see 
we see um, fighting against death as the only way. So the Christian view always has this interesting ambiguity. On the one hand, we see death as an enemy, whilst on the other hand, we recognize that there is a, there is a time to say enough is enough, and that death changes from being an enemy into a strange kind of healing, something to be accepted, and even a gateway uh, into the new heaven and the new earth. Absolutely, to something far better. Well, sadly, we've we've run out of time, and I just wanted to ask you one more question, John, and that was uh, most of our listeners here are Christian doctors and dentists all around the world. What what can what, what advice could you give to Christian doctors and dentists who are perhaps becoming more aware of this issue as a result of hearing this talk? How can we get engaged? What contribution can we make in this? in this fight. You've been involved in it for a long time. Yeah, thanks. I, I do think that our first priority is to educate ourselves. You know, we really need to get a firm grasp of the relevant information, both medically, we really need to understand how palliative care works, what its philosophy is, how it's different from intentional killing. And uh, and we need to understand the Christian foundations of our position. But I, but I think then, secondly, we need to be involved in, in educating others. I, I think there's a huge task of educating our colleagues, educating members of the Christian church and so on. And there are a number of resources to help us. I mean, there are these a number of organizations which, we've, which we mentioned and um, We'll, we'll attach to the podcast a number of links of organizations, resources, books, and other things which are available uh, to help in this task of education. Well, thank you very much, Professor John Wyatt, for uh, a, a wonderfully comprehensive and wide-ranging talk and for really challenging us in this whole area. So it just remains to me to say thank you to everyone. Thank you to Professor Wyatt and to all of you for coming along and making this uh, so worthwhile. God, may God bless you and we hope to see you again.